Reflections on William Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum. Part 2. Act 2, Scene 1 is Brutus in his orchard, and it could be called uh, The Fall of Brutus, or it could be called Brutus's Seduction of Brutus. What's most interesting in this uh, scene for me is the role played by Brutus's servant boy, Lucius. Brutus says, What, Lucius? Ho, I cannot by the progress of the stars give guess how near today. Lucius, I say, I would it were my fault to sleep so soundly. In other words, Brutus has been up all night, troubled as Hamlet was, you know, troubled with that Hamlet problem, really. Shall I engage in this violence, in this murder, or shall I not? And it has kept him awake. But his servant boy, Lucius, seems to be sleeping okay. Enter Lucius. Now, the stage directions are very important. Lucius, as you know, means light, the bearer of light. So enter... Now, in this scene, there are four lights that will be brought into play. And the first one is Lucius. He is the innocent light. And Brutus says to him, him, Give me a taper in my study, Lucius. When it is lighted, come and call me here. In other words, go light a, a candle in my study, and I will go into my study. And would that Brutus had gone into his study after he got the taper lit. In other words, that's where he can collect himself and, uh, and come to his senses. Stage direction, Lucius exit. Light leaves, and Brutus is left in the midnight. And this speech is a model of self-deception, the seduction of Brutus by Brutus. And remarkably, it begins with this. It must be by his death. It must be by his death. In other words, he is going to go through the intellectual hand-wringing in the lines that follow, but the conclusion has already been made. And he is the first person, not Cassius, not Casca. Brutus is the first person who actually mentions murder. It must be by his death. And for my part, I know no personal cause to spurn at him but for the general. He said, I have no grievance against Caesar. And it's only this general concern about being a king and, and aborting the Republican principles. I have no personal qualm. Then he says, he would be crowned. How that might change his nature. In other words, his nature is a perfectly okay nature. And we're talking in the subjunctive mood. That might change his nature. How that might change his nature. There's the question. It is the bright day that brings forth the adder that, and that craves wary walking. Crown him. That, and then I grant we put a sting in him that at his will he may do danger with. He may do danger with. See, we may, ha may have some problems if he's king. Nothing so far. The abuse of greatness is when it disjoints remorse from power, which is really exactly what Brutus is doing right here. And to speak truth of Caesar, I have not known when his affections swayed more than his reason. But tis a common proof that lowliness is young ambition's ladder, whereto the climber upward turns his face. But when he once attains the utmost round, he then unto the ladder turns his back, looks in the clouds, scorning the base degrees by which he did ascend. So Caesar may. May. And lest he may, prevent. And since the quarrel will bear no color for the thing he is, Fashion it thus. Now, those are the weighty words. Fashion it thus. This is, this is simply deceit, and he knows it. In other words, he's a spin artist. How are we going? What kind of spin are we going to put on this thing? We have to fashion it thus. Now, all political realists know this. 
We do what we have to do and then we fashion it thus. Fashion it thus, he said, that what he is augmented would run to these and these extremities and therefore think him as a serpent's egg which hatched would as his kind grow mischievous and kill him in the shell. It's an absolutely self-deceptive argument. He's talking himself into it. And finally he admits that he's just gonna, they're just going to have to find some kind of, some kind of uh, euphemism, some kind of facade for this project of theirs. Enter Lucius. The taper burneth in your closet, sir. Search now. So his closet is his study. Searching the window for a flint, I found this paper thus sealed up. And the paper is this false letter from Cassius. But notice, searching for a flint. Remember what Cassius had said, I am glad that my weak words have struck but this much show of fire from Brutus. Cassius is in the business of hitting flint and steel and blowing the spark in the, in the dry tinder of Brutus's soul. And this is another instance of it. Lucius has gone in to light the taper, and where he finds where the flint would be, this letter, which is another source of fire, another source of, uh, it's the light of, con uh, the, the, the illumination of the, of the conflagration, the fire. So Brutus says, is it the Ides of March tomorrow? And uh, uh, Lucius says, I don't know. And Brutus says, well, go out and check and check with the calendar and come back and report. So exit Lucius. So now we have Brutus who has the letter of Cassius in front of the forged letter of Cassius. And he says, without Lucius on, uh, in the, on stage, he says, the exhalations whizzing in the air give so much light that I may read by them. Now this means the meteor shower. Uh, that's all part of this chaos that's going on. The exhalations whizzing in the air give so much light that I may read by them. Now he had just said before that he, by the stars he couldn't tell what time of day it was. He doesn't have enough light. He's asked Lucius to go out and light his study and, and so on. And now he has this letter which is associated with the flint and steel and suddenly he says, I can read this letter. There's enough light from this meteor shower, part of the chaos, the exhalations whizzing in the air, enough light to read this letter. This is like in the Virgil's Aeneid when Aeneas is walking through uh, Troy in flames. There's a passage where he says, bright conflagrations gave me light. Uh, so he, he, can, he can read this letter. It's another form of light. These, th this chaos, social chaos, actually creates a kind of parody of illumination. When it's going on, we say, oh, I see now. Now I can see what I have to do. You see that? And it's some kind of perverted light. So he opens the letter. He said, I have, I have enough light here to read this letter. And, what, and now we, he's going to read the letter out loud to us. And here's what the letter says. Here's what he reads to us. Quote, Brutus, thou sleepest, awake, see thyself, shall roam, etc. Speak, strike, redress. Now notice, he reads the opening salutation and the closing invocation and all the rest he sums up by saying, etc. Now, is he ready or not? In other words, he just glosses over it. It doesn't matter. He's getting it already. He, all, he takes, all it takes for him right now is a little hint, etc. What a comment. What a comment. Now, is this the Brutus? What would Brutus do if he were in his study with the taper that Lucius just lit and had collected himself and thought things over? Would he skip over the whole body of the letter with the comment, etc.? No, you see? I think this is Shakespeare's way of saying, look at this guy. He is, he's looking for... He's, any provocation will set him off. Lucius comes back in, says it is the Ides of March. There is a knocking at the door. Lucius goes in, and there's Cassius and the other conspirators. And he leads them in, and he says to Brutus, their hats are plucked about their ears 
and half their faces buried in their cloaks, that by no means I may discover them by any mark of favor. Here come the conspirators. You can't even see their face anymore, sneaking in in the dead of night. And Brutus says, here's where a, a line and a stage direction say everything. Brutus says, let them enter, and the stage direction is exit Lucius. Light goes out, conspirators come in, and Brutus says, they are the faction, O conspiracy. Shamest thou to show thy dangerous brow by night when evils are most free? O oh, then by day, where wilt thou find a cavern dark enough to mask thy monstrous visage? Seek none, conspiracy. Hide it in smiles and affability. Now that's what's happened to Brutus's nobility. Hide it in smiles and affability. And then there's a little funny thing. The conspirators come in, and it's not day, it's still dark, and they're not sure when it's going to be day. But then the question is, uh, where's the sun going to come up? We're really talking about the new day. Now, you see, the, the mythology is always, as soon as we drop the blade on this, on this reverend head, we're in a new day. That's what, the, that's what the regicide mythology is always all about. It takes this in order for us to have a new day. See, that's what happened in Romania. We can't have a new day until we execute the old, the representative of the old order. So it's always a sense of the dawning of a new day happens, you see, at the moment when we eliminate the old. So they're talking, the Ides of March, that's when they're going to do it. It's going to be a new day. Question is, these people who are so sure of that can't even decide which way is east. Decius says, here lies the east, doth not the day break here? And Casca says, no. And Cena says, oh, pardon, sir, it doth. And yon gray lines that fret the clouds are messengers of day. Yon gray lines, I think, probably refers back up here to these strange lines of Brutus about hide it in smiles and affability. The lines of the play, gray lines. Are we going to start a new day? Will a new day dawn, a new age dawn? When people are talking like that, gray lines like that. And so they, they're confused. Where's, where's the east? Where's the sun come up? They, don't, know, they didn't know, don't even know where the sun comes up. Well, Casca knows. He says, you shall confess that you are both deceived. Here, as I point my sword, the sun arises. Which is a great way growing on the south, weighing the youthful season of the year. Some two months hence, up higher toward the north, he first presents his fire, and the high east stands as the capital directly here. This is Shakespeare, I think, having fun at the expense of these people. They don't even know which way is which, and they make the conclusion that the, 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 the participants in the violent victimization always make, which is that it's at the, the sword is the beginning of the new day. The sun comes up wherever that sword falls down. The question is raised about whether or not they should kill anybody other than Caesar. And, of course, the next one in line would be Mark Antony. Shall we kill Mark Antony? And Brutus says, our course will seem too bloody. Now, notice the verb, will seem too bloody. Everything is determined at this point by whether or not the mob can be convinced. Everything is directed to the mob. The mob is the final arbiter, just as it is in the Passion story. <clears throat> the mob is the final arbiter of all this, and the political leaders, when they push comes to shove, know it. Brutus says, Our course will seem too bloody, Caius Cassius, to cut the head off and then hack the limbs, like wrath and death and envy afterwards, for Antony is but a limb of Caesar. Let's be sacrificers, but not butchers, Caius. Huh? Let's be sacrificers, but not butchers, Caius. Now, what's the difference? The difference is whether or not the myth holds. If the myth holds, we are sacrificers. And if it does not, we are butchers. 
Brutus says, gentle friends. See that? Gentle friends. Let's kill him boldly, but not wrathfully. Let's carve him as a dish for the gods, not hew him as a carcass fit for hounds. And let our hearts, as subtle masters do, stir up their servants, their passions, to an act of rage, and after seem to chide them. Seem to chide them. In other words, we have to be able to say, when it's all over with, oh, I wish I hadn't gotten so carried away. But we, in the meantime, have to get carried away. This shall make our purpose necessary and not envious, which so appearing to the common eyes, we shall be called perjurers, not murderers. Now, you see, everything depends on whether or not people can be made to believe in sacred violence, in legitimate, righteous violence. That's the measure of whether or not the hypnotic myth is working. And that's the whole concern of this part of the play. Can we convince them that it was necessary? And Brutus then notices that Lucius has fallen asleep, his innocent light. And his, another light comes in, the last chance for clear light, and that's his wife, Portia. And she says, is Brutus sick? And is it physical to walk unbraced and suck up the humors of the dark morning? There was, in medieval times, it was thought that the, that the, uh, that the dew and so on had some, was infected sometimes. So here you are exposing yourself to these, to these uh, infections. What is Brutus sick, and will he steal out of his wholesome bed to dare the vile contagion of the night and tempt the roomy and unpurged air to add unto his sickness? Is Brutus sick, she said. She leaves and enter Lucius with Caius Ligarius. Now, Caius Ligarius is the oiliest of them all so far. Lucius says, Lucius says to Brutus, here is a sick man that would speak with you. Now, Portius just said, are you sick? And here comes another sick man. Brutus says to Lucius, boy, stand aside. And Caius Ligarius comes in. And he says to him, oh, what a time have you chose out, brave Caius, to wear a kerchief. Would you were not sick? And we find out immediately that his sickness has more to do with has less to do with physical ailment than with something else. Caius says, I am not sick if Brutus have in hand any exploit worthy of the name of honor. And so this is a winking sort of a thing. You see. Can, you, can you lead me in something that we can call honorable? And Brutus says, Such an exploit have I in hand, Ligarius. Had you a healthful ear to hear it. And Caius says, by all the gods that Rome, Romans bow before, I here discard my sickness. Soul of Rome, brave son, derived from honorable loins, thou, like an exorcist, hast conjured up my mortified spirit, my primitive spirit. Now bid me run, and I will strive with things impossible, yea, get the better of them. What's to do? Now, he has just said, I'll do anything. And then he says, what are we going to do? He has no idea what he's called on to do. A piece of work that will make sick men whole, says Brutus. And Caius says, but are not some whole that we must make sick? That must we also, says Brutus. But he says, never mind that. Come with me, and I'll explain as we go along to whom we must do these vile things. And Caius says, set on your foot, and with a heart new fired I follow you, to do I know not what, but it suffices that Brutus leads me on. Now here's Ligarius. He is so, he is so 
in heat for whatever it is they're going to do. He says, I'll do it. Just before he finds out what he's supposed to do and before he finds out who he's supposed to do it to. I'll go along with And Brutus has sunk to the level of working as a colleague with this kind of a creature. So what's happened is that the sacrificial logic has taken over one of the noblest minds in Rome. For me, this play is a, is a study in, in the awkward uh, situation where the myth is trying to reassert itself in the presence of people who really know better, but who, in a sense, can't resist it. The thoroughness and rapidity of Brutus's conversion to the conspiracy to murder Caesar is the first of this play's many demonstrations of the power of the myth of sacred violence to intoxicate minds otherwise thought to have been permanently sobered by the inculcation of Greco-Roman philosophical, ethical, social, and political ideals. It was a miscalculation due largely to the inadequate recognition that the Greco-Roman ideals were themselves features of the myth of sacred violence, cooled into prescriptions, axioms, codes, and social principles, and no longer in the molten state of overt violence. Shortly after Shakespeare left his contribution to posterity, the Enlightenment made the same miscalculation about the capacity of these ideals to maintain cultural sobriety. Today, confidence in them is the fragile possession of the shrinking number of those who have managed to ignore the facts of 20th century history. Cassius, on the stage alone, in a soliloquy, referring to Brutus, but in a way speaking to the spiritual descendants of Brutus, said, Well, Brutus, thou art noble, yet I see thy honorable metal may be wrought from that it is disposed. Therefore, tis meet that noble minds keep ever with their likes. For who so firm that cannot be seduced? For who so firm that cannot be seduced? There's a tr tremendous acknowledgement of the, of the mimetic thing here. Noble as you are, your noble minds better stay uh, with other noble minds because, and we know this about about uh, adolescents, we say to them all the time, you hang out with the wrong crowd and something happens. Something rubs off, we say. It's, it's the mimetic operation. It happens to us adults as well, but we're embarrassed by it and, and, uh, and like to pretend to ourselves and to others that it's not really happening, that we don't imitate. Uh, but Shakespeare knows full well that that's a very profound part of us and he acknowledges as much there. That's how Brutus got seduced, by being in the presence of Cassius, as Cassius unpacked his, his uh, snake pit of a heart in front of Brutus. Neither Brutus nor Caesar can resist a resort to myth and ritual because of the awkward situation in which each of them finds himself. Caesar had said <clears throat> early in the play, Set on and leave no ceremony out. Leave no ceremony out. And we have other indications in the play that Shakespeare is presenting a Caesar who is very subtly choreographing his triumphant entry into Rome and the attendant uh, public uh, operations. Leave no ceremony out. He is, he's, being, he's, he's being scrupulous about the ritual aspects of his... Uh, re-entry into Roman society. This criteria is demanded by the nature of the triumph he is choreographing, his military victory over the sons of Pompey. Pompey was a prominent Roman family, and he is coming back not from some victory over foreigners, but from some victory over prominent Romans. And that's a very delicate situation. And so He's especially keen to do things the right way because the question is whether or not the myth that justifies that violence will stand up under those circumstances. Precisely because of the awkward situation this represents, he must be attentive to ritual detail. 
His latest victims, the sons of Pompey, have been insufficiently anathematized, and therefore the common people have been insufficiently anesthetized to their killing. That's kind of a mouthful, but that's the sum and substance of it right there. Brutus has precisely the same problem. Brutus says when Cassius suggests, well, maybe we better eliminate not just the very top guy, but a few of the upper echelon people like Mark Anthony. Brutus says our course will seem too bloody, Caius Cassius. Notice that, seem too bloody. He is not, there's, this is no moral qualms he's, he's uh, having here. He's looking directly at the mob. It will seem too bloody. We, if we could do it and get away with it, fine. But <clears throat> under the circumstances, we have to attend to appearances. Let's be sacrificers, but not butchers. So it has to be a ritual enterprise. He is proposing violence against an insufficiently anathematized victim, Caesar, to be performed in the presence of insufficiently anesthetized onlookers, exactly the problem Caesar had. And it happens also to be exactly the cultural problem we in our day have. Increasingly, we find ourselves at odds with, at war with, contesting ideologically with, etc., etc., people who, have, who are insufficiently anathematized for their complete elimination, and therefore the, the people themselves are insufficiently anesthetized to, to, the, to that prospect. And so we get a very awkward situation. Culture's not functioning very well because we're not able to sufficiently anathematize the victim and anesthetize the members of the cult. Last week I shared this René Girard quote where he says, all must be placed in the much larger context of a society that for centuries has been able at first to abate and then to halt altogether the production of myth and ritual or the tr sacred transfiguration of violence. The production of myth and ritual and the sacred transfiguration of violence are synonyms for one another. And we are, he says, a society that is weaning itself of the capacity, if not the will, to do that. And to that extent, we find ourselves in the same situation that Caesar and Brutus find themselves. When a victimizing episode calls for, we don't have the capacity, it seems, to sufficiently anathematize our victim and, and in doing so, sufficiently anesthetize uh, our own constituents. In passing, we might remark that the wrench that fell into the discreetly sacrificial works of conventional cultural existence was the crucifixion and the gospel assessment of its significance. Although that itself was the culmination of the, of the biblical thrust. The whole Bible from Abel, Isaac, Joseph, Job, Jeremiah, 2nd Isaiah, the slaughter of the innocents, the death of John the Baptist, the crucifixion of Jesus and the stoning of Stephen and so on, is a story of the victim, the story from the victim's point of view with varying degrees of lucidity, always shining through whatever attempts are made, and, and attempts are made in these same texts, to mythologize the violence, to treat it as sacred violence. Uh, but always in the biblical text, the point of view of the victim shines through. In the biblical environment, the victim's story is more tenacious than the myth that would camouflage it. Girard says, a society that replaces myth by an awareness of persecution is a society in the process of desacralization, by which he means belief in sacred violence. Sacralization is the capacity to achieve states of mystification so strong that violence is seen as holy violence. And to the extent that that is true, we're living in a sacralized society, a sacralized culture, a, a mystified culture. We, just, we, we, can, we can actually see violence as or victimization as holy and divinely ordained. And Gerard says that is the measure of mystification. If we, can, if we can condone violence as holy violence, to say that's what God wants, Gerard says we're living in a mystified environment. And it's precisely that that the 
the gospel makes increasingly uh, impossible. Both Brutus and Caesar have their eyes on the mob, and both are therefore uh, attentive to ritual and myth. Caesar's ascendance to the ultimate pinnacle of political life requires myth and ritual. His myth is the imperial myth. Another, I've been using this term soundtrack for the myth because it's hard to put your hands on the myth. What is the myth? Well, it's like the soundtrack of a movie which, comes, which plays certain themes at certain times and tells you how you ought to feel and how you ought to relate to the events that are before you. It sort of eases you into them and interprets them without words. So his, his soundtrack is the soundtrack of imperial Rome. And his ritual is the sanctification of violence. And the violence he has to sanctify in this instance is the murder or the vanquishing of the sons of Pompey. Brutus's usurpation requires myth and ritual. His myth is the, the myth of Republican Rome. See, his myth is uh, the myth, if you will, of democracy, though it's a far cry from any kind of complete democracy. Save us from complete democracy, please. I mean, I don't say that as a snob. Just recognizing human emotionality, you have to say it, and, and human sociology. How, if we had a button on the TV where we could say, okay, every, all you, after the 6 o'clock news, how many want to bomb wherever it is? 83% consistently, you bet. Save us from that. Well, here are the two, two in a sense, the two kinds of political, the two political archetypes, some kind of uh, political consensus making, which is the Republican principle, and some kind of autocratic government, which is the imperial principle. And both are having, both are sacrificial, both have their own particular anomalies, both need myth and ritual to carry on their sacrificial enterprise, and both in situations that are delicate, like they're in in this play, have to be very careful about myth and ritual. So Brutus has the Republican soundtrack playing, and he's trying to his 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 ritual is trying to do the same thing: the sanctification of violence. His violence is the assassination. In Act Two, Scene Two, Caesar uh, has heard his wife Calpurnia tossing and turning and screaming in the middle of the night, having nightmares that Caesar is being murdered. And Caesar says to his servant, go bid the priest do present sacrifice and bring me their opinions of success. Again, this is an alarming situation. So we must consult the priest and have the priest consult the gods. And the way you consult the gods is a sacrificial, by sacrificial uh, access to the, to the divine uh, will. And so they do that. In the meantime, Calpurnia ex comes in and she... Uh, uh, worries over her own dreams and over what she is hearing of what is happening in the street, what the, what the watchman uh, is saying about what's going on out there. And she describes, an, another, it's another of the many instances in this play and others of the, what Gerard calls the crisis of degree or crisis of distinctions, the, the, the social crisis, which is rapidly becoming a sacrificial crisis. And uh, Calpurnia says, I never stood on ceremonies, yet now they fright me. I, these things never bothered me before, but now suddenly... In other words, this is a particularly exacerbated social moment. The servant returns and Caesar says, what say the augurs? And he says, they would not have you stir forth today, plucking the entrails of an offering forth, they could not find a heart within the beast. Now, uh, I don't claim that Shakespeare understood all this as well as it appears to me René Girard understands it, but I must say that he understood it uh, well enough to teach René Girard almost everything he knows about it. And w that is to say, he understood it at, at, in his art. One says, how much, uh, how much analysis, how much intellectual rationality is behind us? Who knows? We don't have any idea. All we know is that he put his finger right on it. Homer put his finger right on it. There's a chaos in book one of the Iliad. There's a social crisis going on, conflictual crisis. 
rapidly becoming a sacrificial crisis. And Achilles says, speaking of Apollo, the god who is obviously sending this plague, Achilles says, has he some quarrel with us for failure in vows or hecatombs? Hecatombs is a sacrificial offering. Would mutton burned or smoking goat flesh make him lift the plague? And in book two, that's in book one, in book two, uh, there is a sacrifice, and the sacrifice is uh, of, a, of, a, of an animal to Zeus, asking Zeus to deliver, the Gre to deliver Troy into the hands of Greeks. And after this, immediately after the sacrifice, the text says, but Zeus would not accomplish these desires. He took the ox, but added woe on woe. The system of animal sacrifice is the maintenance system for the whole sacrificial operation of culture. If culture is uh, moving along smoothly, a simple maintenance dose of animal sacrifice is all it takes under the proper liturgical in, uh, circumstances is all it takes to keep it smoothly moving along. But when the maintenance operation begins to falter, then you know you have a crisis. The priest cut open the sacrificial victim, the animal victim, and they find that it has no heart. Something has gone wrong. Calpurnia pleads for Caesar to stay home, and uh, he relents. Decius Brutus comes in, and Decius Brutus is one of the conspirators, and he has told the other conspirators earlier that, don't worry, leave it to me, I'll get him to the show on time, so to speak. And he comes and finds out that Caesar's not going to go. And Caesar says, well, I'll tell you why. Because I love you, I'll tell you why. It's because of Calpurnia's dream. And here's what he says. She dreamt tonight, she saw my statue, which, like a fountain with a hundred spouts, did run pure blood, and many lusty Romans came smiling and did bathe their hands in it. And Decius says, this dream is all a misinterpreted. It was a vision fair and fortunate, your statue spouting blood, blood in many pipes, in which so many smiling Romans bathe, signifies that from you great Rome shall suck reviving blood, and that great men shall press for tinctures, stains, relics, and cognizance. This by Calpurnia's dream is signified. Now Decius does for Calpurnia's dream what culture does for its episode of founding violence. That is to say, it interprets it in a favorable light. He says the result will be reviving blood and people will come for tinctures, stains, relics, and cognizance. Tinctures and stains are alchemical uh, references that have to do with uh, operations used in, in making the, the escutcheons and heraldry of the great uh, families so that somehow his blood will contribute to those cultural forms. And uh, relics obviously has a kind, it's an anachronism, but has a kind of uh, reference to, the, to a martyrdom, uh, a, a reverence for the, for the uh, slain one. And cognizance is again the term in heraldry, which means, a, which refers to the badge worn by the members of a particular household. What he's saying is, this has to do with how your blood will re- will provide the substance for the cultural forms that are to come after you, which is exactly what culture does in the aftermath of its episode of victimization. That's not what Theseus is talking about. He's talking, he's trying to make uh, Caesar think that this is just his bloodline, see, his heirs. Uh, but what you have here, I think, is a depiction of what happens after the sacrificial event. Calpurnia is describing the situation with clear eyes. She's saying, this looks for all the world to me like murder. And that is to say, she's describing an actual event without the mythological overlay. Decius says, Calpurnia says, they're going to murder you. And Decius says, they're going to worship you. And in a in a completely intact cultural environment, both are true. The victim becomes the god. Because at the moment of the victimization, 
social order is restored with such awesome uh, abruptness that it is very typical that the uh, that the victim is the, the the social benefits are attributed to the victim, and in retrospect, the victim is seen as a god. And so you have ex post facto the sacred transfiguration of violence. Decius says, in addition to that, uh, the Senate is going to give you offer you the the throne today, and if you don't go, they may change their mind. So Caesar says he will go, after all. There are two short little scenes, scene three and scene four of Act Two, each of which has a, an amazing brief passage. Artemidorus is a teacher of rhetoric, and there's a little scene where he is writing a note to Caesar, warning him of what's going to happen. And he prepares this note and prepares to pass it on to Caesar, and then he says, my heart laments that virtue cannot live out of the teeth of emulation. That's a, a straightforward recognition of the role of mimesis in human life, human social life. My heart laments that virtue cannot live out of the teeth of emulation. Emulation is a synonym for mimesis or imitation. Virtue, which is what we want to pass on, and the only way we know how to pass it on convincingly, is, is by mimesis, as we all know. You know do, uh, be, we, we may say, do as I say, not as I do, but it never turns out that way. We imitate. We're imitative creatures. For better or worse, it's, it's true of us. And so if we, and that's what Cassius said about Brutus, if you want to, if you want to stay noble, Brutus, you better hang around noble people. My heart laments that virtue cannot live out of the teeth of emulation. It's the very nature of our existence. But it's so strange, you see. It's almost as though Shakespeare is provided right there in this, in this nothing of a scene. See, this thing's called a scene. It's how many lines? It's a handful of lines. But he's provided, he's tucked in there, the key to his whole vision of the human predicament. My heart laments that virtue cannot live out of the teeth of emulation. And if we see virtue, if we see something, we see what we long for is, is, is being. We see someone who seems to have more of it than we do. And we think, what is it that they have that I don't have? And we see they, it's, it's a beautiful woman, or it's a, it's a lot of power, or it's a lot of wealth, or it's this or that, or it's a, you know, something. And so we begin to angle for that. We learn from their desire what to desire. And the whole problem, the whole conflictual thing is born in that emulating act. In the next scene, one could make a bridge between these two insights. They're right next to each other in the play. Scene four in the Roman street, the soothsayer is there, Portia and Lucius are there. And the soothsayer says something extremely important, I think. He says, he says, here the street is narrow. The throngs that follow Caesar at the heels of senators, of praetors, common suitors, will crowd a feeble man almost to death. So he says, I better find a wider place in the street. Well, now, if Shakespeare wanted him to, why did Shakespeare say that? That's the question. Is he trying to just, is this filler? No, Shakespeare's not taught. When Shakespeare writes the word here, it is not a geographical reference. It's a psychosocial reference. It's taking not the width of the street, but the temperature of the social body. He's saying here, the street is narrow. It's a, this is a tight spot. The street is narrow. The throng that follows Caesar at the heels my heart laments that virtue cannot live out of the teeth of emulation. The throng that follows Caesar at the heels of who? Everybody. Senators, praetors, common suitors will crowd a feeble man almost to death. We have Cassius's word for the fact that Caesar is a feeble man. He used the word to describe Caesar in Act 1. 
that such a feeble man would have such power. We know he's, he's been acknowledged in this play as a feeble man. That is to say, a man who, has, who occasionally shows some uh, human frailty. In other words, this is a very critical moment in the social life, a tight spot in which the, the most, in the first instance, the, in a way, the, the sacrificial myth has half the work has already been done for it, because the polarization of the of uh, the unanimity minus one has already taken place. All that has to happen now is that the valence has to be reversed. Instead of it being admiration, it could just turn very quickly into enmity. In which case, you would have the sacrificial formula par excellence. So it's a, tight, it's, a, it's a delicate situation. And the interesting thing about this sentence is that the noun, the subject, is throng and the verb is crowd. This is a sentence that just circles back in on itself. The throng, crowd. What's going on here? Crowd's a feeble man almost to death. In other words, who can be in the place of Caesar during a situation like this? Now, perhaps this is why Caesar needed to go out there and defeat the sons of Pompey. Because one of the ways to, to, to satisfy this moment of cultural unease is to go defeat a foreign enemy and come back victorious. See, that... That's a, a sacrificial solution. But the pr problem was the only available enemy happened to be the, the scions of a, of a respectable Roman family. And so there's a, you know, it's, it's, there's a predicament. Well, just one more time because I think it's so important. Here the street is narrow. The throng that follows Caesar at the heels of senators, of praetors, common suitors, will crowd a feeble man almost to death. Artemidorus is unable to persuade Caesar to stay away from the forum. Uh, Caesar and the other, others go into the capital. Cassius says, Trebonius knows his time. For look you, Brutus, he draws Mark Anthony out of the way. Takes Mark Anthony. We know Mark Anthony's where his loyalties lie. And so he's quietly taken off. Gerard says this. It is as a unanimous group that Odysseus and his companions plunge the red-hot stake into the Cyclops' eye. It is as a unanimous group that the gods of some of the generative myths conspire and bring about the death of one of their divine colleagues. In Hindu mythology, the same motif recurs. The Yajur Veda speaks of a sacrificial ceremony in which a god Soma is to be put to death by the other gods. Mithra at first refuses to join his divine companions in the act, but he is finally persuaded to do so by the argument that the sacrifice will be totally ineffective if not performed by all. This myth offers a prescription for the correct performance of a sacrifice. Unanimity is a formal requirement. The abstention of a single participant renders the sacrifice even worse than useless. It makes it dangerous. We can have no one actually present except those who are completely in the grip of the myth. Because someone who is not will recognize what is happening for what it is. And so we must take the Mark Anthony's away someplace. So now they're in the forum, and uh, by pre-design, Metellus Simber pleads on behalf of his brother, who has been banished, and pleads with Caesar to revoke the banishment. And Caesar, very pompously, speaking in, of himself in the third person, speaking of himself as a, as a godlike creature, not like ordinary men, he says, I cannot be moved by this kind of silliness. 
What I have decreed, I have decreed. And there's no going back. He is fixed. And very tellingly, he says, I am constant as the northern star, of whose true fixed and resting quality there is no fellow in the firmament. There's but one in all doth hold his place. I do know but one that unassailable holds on his rank, unshaked of motion, and that I am he. Zorot says, the strategy of desire consists in setting up the dazzling illusion of a self-sufficiency that we shall believe in a little ourselves if we succeed in convincing others of it. In a world that is utterly devoid of objective criteria, desires are devoted entirely to mimeticism. Everyone has to try to convert to his own benefit mimeticism that is still seeking a point to fix on, which it will always find by reference to, the, to other desires. So each person must feign the most impressive narcissism, must advertise as subtly as he can the desire that he experiences for himself so that he can compel others to imitate his appetizing desire, to present oneself as being self-sufficient. This is the, what, what uh, Freud calls the coquette. Uh, and this is exactly what Caesar is doing. And of course what it does it is, is that it frenzies the mimetic desire of others. It makes others all the more avaricious for that autonomy and creates a very dangerous situation. Inflames, uh, exacerbates the whole mimetic thing. So right before he is assassinated, he's talking this way. I am the northern star. I am the fixed point in the firmament. I am completely autonomous, completely self-sufficient. No need for any of you. And there are further appeals, and Caesar says, Hence, wilt thou lift up Olympus? Clear identification with the gods. He's one of the gods. This is the, this is the whole Nietzschean nonsense 300 years before Nietzsche. Gerard says, the confusion between the god and the victim is the climax of the manic depressive oscillation. He's talking about personality, personality disorder. The confusion between the god and the victim is the climax of the manic depressive oscillation. Which, by the way, I just mentioned Nietzsche, that's, that's the Nietzschean finale. But here, if you apply it to the social world, the manic depressive oscillation in the body politic, which can't figure out what to do. And we got a taste of that in the very first uh, scene of the play where we find out this mob has been ooing and aahing about Pompey and now they're ooing and aahing about Pompey's uh, killer. See? In other words, there's this oscillation going on. And Caesar, in a sense, is the puppet of it almost. He's acting out. And now he's in the He's, he's manifesting as the God. And there's something going on in the social order that the gospel, of course, in order to decode all this, picks up perfectly. And it's Caesar comes triumphantly into town, and a month later, he comes in Fe February 15th, the, um, uh, the um, feast of Lupercalia, and on March 15th, he's assassinated. Now, those are Shakespeare's dates, not Plutarch's. There, there you have it. Jesus comes into town. Uh, palms, what, what we celebrate Palm Sunday. See? Great procession. Ticker tape parade. A week later, the Passion. So you get the gospel decoding the same operation, except with a victim who completely transcends and understands what's happening. They stab... Uh, Caesar, one by one, and the famous et tu brute, Caesar dies. And immediately you get these ejaculations from the 
uh, from the uh, assassin. Senna says, liberty, freedom, tyranny is dead. Run hence, proclaim, cry it in the street. And Cassius, some to the common pulpit and cry out, liberty, freedom, and enfranchisement. The critical moment has arrived. Because this conspiracy was a covert conspiracy, the mythological uh, preparation could not have could not have taken place beforehand. It all had to be done covertly. So it's only at the moment that it's accomplished that the mythology can then be applied. Uh, in other words, we c the American people could not have been prepared for the Grenada invasion or the invasion of wherever else in advance if these are surprise attacks, you see, uh, or the dropping of the bomb on, uh, on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. These are not things that we can do in advance. So we, have, we are prepared to unleash the mythological torrent after the event, precisely what's happening here. The moment Caesar falls, these are the ejaculations heard by the, the conspirators. Liberty, freedom, tyranny is dead. Run hence, proclaim, cry it in the streets. Shakespeare wrote this four centuries ago, and we have carried on history as though it didn't exist. He put his finger exactly right on it. This is the, this is the continuation of the sacrificial logic in political terms. Brutus, who is a little more... Uh, shall we say, sophisticated. Not sophisticated in some ways, but in some ways, yes. He says, ambition's debt is paid. He says, people and senators, be not affrighted, fly not, stand still, ambition's debt is paid. There's great irony in that. Actually. Ambition's debt is paid. Because the, the victimizer, that's what the victimizer wants to say. The victimizer wants to blow the whistle and say, okay, that's it, no more. That game's over. That's the last violence. We just did the, the last and necessary violence, the legitimate violence. All the rest of it is out of order. No more violence, please. See? And that's what he said. Wait a second. Ambition's debt is paid. We're finished here. It's all the scores are even. Everybody go home. And if he can, if he can be convincing, it, the myth will fall right into place and everything will roll right along. Casca says, go to the pulpit, Brutus. And Decius and Cassius too. See, we need people immediately into the pulpit, onto the six o'clock news. You see, immediately into the place where we can put a spin on what's just happened. Then there's this other question, of course, that comes up again, and that is the question of the presence of people who may not be sufficiently uh, seduced by the 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 logic of the myth. Where is Publius? Publius is an old senator who was tottering around, didn't have time to get out of the way, and didn't understand what was going on. Cassius says to Publius, Leave us, Publius, lest that the people rushing on us should do your age some mischief. And I think that's pure and simply an excuse. The point is, he wants to get Publius out of the way, and he wants to give Publius a sufficiently logical reason for getting him out of the way. Brutus says to Publius, do so and let no man abide this deed but we the doers. Let no man abide this deed but we the doers. Now abide has double meaning in that sentence, but still in all, uh, that's an important aspect of the complex of myth and ritual that Brutus needs in order to pull this thing off. Let no man abide this deed but we the doers. Trebonius comes in, Cassius says, where is Antony? Trebonius had taken Antony out of the way. So there's a question. Publius, Antony, others that might be present that may not have been in on it. Remember Gerard had said, unanimity is a formal requirement. The abstention of a single participant renders the sacrifice even worse than useless. It makes it dangerous. Trebonius, in response to Cassius' question about Antony, says, fled to his house amazed. Men, wives, and children stare, cry out, and run as it were doomsday. In other words, this is an extremely critical moment. 